This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and it's always lovely to have your company. Now today on the show, the resurgence of the political left in the United States where socialism is gaining ground, especially among millennials. People before profits, uh, it's a its a kind of safety net that we really don't have in the United States. You are, you're much better off uh, in Australia. Stay tuned for my conversation with the veteran American left-leaning author, John Judas. But first, Jacinda Mania in New Zealand. Tonight, New Zealand has shown the Labour Party its greatest support in at least 50 years. And for that, I only have two simple words. Thank you. Well, that was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern there. She's celebrating her emphatic election victory last weekend. Now, the significance of the Labor Party landslide, it's not just that it's seen as a reward for her decisive response to the COVID crisis. It means New Zealand now has its first single party government in decades. So what does the mandate mean for New Zealand's economic landscape as it faces its worst recession in nearly a century? Will Ardern deliver a progressive transformation across the ditch? What happens if New Zealand does not sort out its economic challenges quickly? Could our trans-Tasman cousins, could they become a failed state? Oliver Hartwich is the Executive Director of the New Zealand Initiative, and Josie Pagani is the Executive Director of the Council for International Development. Both are based in Wellington. Oliver, Josie, welcome to Radio National. Hello. Hi, Tom. Josie, how do you account for Jacinda Ardern's emphatic victory? Well, I mean, you've got to say that the the popularity is genuine. People love her. Uh, She's like a superstar. She goes into shopping malls and gets mobbed. But I think you'd say, you'd have to say too, that that election campaign was incredibly disciplined. Labor wanted a COVID election. They wanted an election that was about who stopped us getting sick, not who's going to get us back to work. And and they succeeded in getting that. They also wanted an election that was focused not on Labor, not particularly on policy, but almost entirely on Jacinda. So if you did the completely unscientific focus group in the taxis, you'd ask a taxi driver who you're voting for, and they'd say, I'm voting for Jacinda. Yeah, Oliver, Josie here reflects the conventional wisdom about Jacinda Ardern that her aggressive handling of COVID, uh, not to mention her response to the mass shooting of Muslims in in Christchurch earlier last year, the the gun control measures she put in place, all of that explains Jacinda Ardern's remarkable political popularity. She's also received widespread global praise for being a stateswoman who's kept New Zealand united, even in the face of multiple crises. You're not a fan. Why? Well, first of all, I would agree with uh, Josie. Jacinda is remarkably popular, and um, the scenes from her election campaign were quite telling. Wherever she turned up, there were hundreds of people around her celebrating her. Uh, My experience uh, with taxi drivers, though, is a bit different. Maybe I've got different (laughs) taxi companies I use. Um, The last last few times I had um, taxi drivers, um, they complained that their business is down, that the cities are dying out. 
that we are not recovering properly from the crisis, that business is simply not what it used to be. And I typically take taxis, of course, when I'm flying from Wellington to Auckland and have to get to the CBD. And you can see the traffic in Auckland. It's not the same anymore. The city looks kind of dead. So we've got a massive challenge ahead in the economy in New Zealand. And that's why I haven't really seen much from the government in terms of plans of how to revive the economy and how to get us out of this. They have effectively beaten the virus now twice. But they haven't actually given us any clear indication on how they're going to lift us out of this. Because the projections for public debt, for unemployment, for monetary policy, they actually scare me when you look at them. Many New Zealand business figures share Oliver's scepticism. Is that a fair point, Josie? Yes, it is, because the election really did focus on COVID, right? It was absolutely about who stopped us getting sick. And so it was actually really hard to get any coherent debate about what is the plan B if we don't get a vaccine next year? What is the rebuild plan? So it was all very vague, that stuff. And, you know, you're right, Oliver, you've got different taxi companies to me too, probably. But, uh, you know, another thing I heard in the taxis a lot was, you know, oh, well, um, if it's between wealth and health, I'm going to pick health and Jacinda picked health. Well, of course, you know, we know that that's a false dichotomy. It's not health or wealth, if your country is unable to trade and your borders are closed long term, then you're not going to raise the revenue to be able to have decent hospitals. You're not going to get your school buildings, you know, renovated and so on. And you're not going to be getting elective surgery. You know, people are actually going to get unhealthy. So, but it was, no one wanted to hear that, Tom. That was the thing. No one wanted to hear a debate about next year. They just wanted to know that, you know, Auntie Jacinda was going to look after us and that was it. Yes, well, I mean, Josie does mention the vaccine. Uh, Jacinta Ardern, like most Western leaders, frankly, she's predicated policy on the likelihood of a vaccine in coming months. But the question here is, what if a readily available vaccine, if it ever happens, what if it's a long way off? I mean, for how long, Oliver, are the present measures sustainable? I mean, how long can New Zealand cut itself off from the outside world? Well, I think um, that is actually a political question, not an economic one. From an economic perspective, I think it would be desirable to open New Zealand to the world uh, more quickly. We can do this safely. We can still have proper border measures to ensure that uh, when we open up to the world again, we do this without importing the virus. But I think the government sticks to the precautionary principle at the moment, and that's a political decision because the public doesn't want the government to do anything else. We had opinion polls before the election showing that more than 70% of New Zealanders would actually like to keep the borders more or less closed. And these are people who probably do not have any immediate uh, travel plans or maybe don't have any family abroad, don't have any business uh, to do abroad. And so for them, life is quite pleasant as long as they also keep their jobs in New Zealand. And so they would rather like to continue the status quo until that vaccine arrives. So it is difficult for the government to go against this when the public is so strongly in favour of just keeping the borders shut as they are. But at some stage, we'll just have to because um, the economic consequences of this um, prolonged isolation are going to be enormous. Josie, is, is that a fair point? Absolutely. You could not get a discussion out during this election campaign about elimination versus suppression 
of the virus. And so it was it was almost impossible to talk about the plan B if the vaccine doesn't turn up, which let's face it, it's unlikely to turn up and be available next year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, realistically, whether you're from the left or the right of the political spectrum, it was really hard to talk about how long do our borders stay closed. And those of us, myself included, who were trying to say, you know, look, closing the borders is a six-month policy, not a two-year policy. Uh, you know, you can't possibly maintain a closed border and keep trade going, even though we can still export our milk powder and so on. But, you know, the ability for our businesses to connect with the world and so on for us to travel uh, is just, you know, not feasible. But whenever I said that, I would get attacked on Twitter and everywhere for being the head of a capitalist death cult. You know, so you could not get a good debate going about this, even though the WHO, for example, was saying, hey, you know, strict lockdowns, and we've had very strict lockdowns, level four lockdowns, are not the best approach if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis on either health or economic growth. My guests are Josie Pagani. She's from the New Zealand-based Council for International Development. And Oliver Hartwich is from the New Zealand Initiative. And we're talking about Jacinta Ardern's emphatic election victory. Now, it's fair to say her go-hard, go-early approach to the pandemic. It's basically eliminated locally spread COVID in the nation. Life is pretty much back to normal. You may have seen the packed stadiums for the recent Wallabies All Blacks test matches, but notwithstanding this talk of a trans-Tasman bubble, the borders remain closed, as we've just discussed. New Zealand is a small, exposed trading nation. And if there is no vaccine, Oliver, how will New Zealand cope without tourism? Remember, tourism is the nation's largest export industry. It is a real challenge for us. Uh, and it's not just tourism, of course. It's also higher education. It's um, secondary education, too, by the way. So we have um, exported tourism. We have exported education services. And without that, the New Zealand economy will be quite a bit poorer. And um, we can see this also in other sectors and just um, restaurants, hospitality. We can see it in retail. You just have to walk through New Zealand cities to see that um, more and more shops are closing. The economic outlook doesn't look good. The IMF last week predicted that um, out of 80 countries, New Zealand will be just one of a handful of countries that will have lower GDP per capita in 2025 compared to what it was in 2019. Other countries, including Australia, are moving on. New Zealand is falling behind. And by 2025, the difference between Australia and New Zealand in these development terms will be about 5% of GDP, which is quite a lot for five years. On top of that, of course, we have got some other developments in New Zealand, which I think are simply not sustainable. Currently, our Reserve Bank prints the equivalent of what 1% of GDP every three weeks in quantitative easing. And by 2024, the Reserve Bank will sit on about 50% of all of New Zealand's government debt. And so we've got a problem here. We have a very negative economic development. Uh, We have um, fiscal problems. We've got monetary challenges. And I think over the next few years, this will only be okay, sustainable, if we manage to significantly lift productivity. But I don't see any plans for that. And this is what I meant when I said to a few newspapers that I'm afraid that New Zealand might become a failed state. I don't mean we become another Somalia, but I think we become another Italy, where the economy is simply not moving forward, where we'll just accept low productivity, um, low incomes, high house prices, and the economy simply won't move anymore. And that's what I'm afraid of. 
So a new Italy in the South Pacific, is that a plausible reading, uh, Josie? I think that the thing about COVID is that it's accelerated existing trends, hasn't it, that existed before the virus. And one of those mm. trends, you're absolutely right, was low productivity. In New Zealand, we work more hours and produce less in terms of productivity than almost any other OECD country. So COVID has certainly accelerated that. It's a bit like that Warren Buffett quote, you know, you only know who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. So it's kind of gone, oh, hell, we're, we're producing low-value commodities like milk powder, like raw logs to the world. You know, we're like the peasants at the bottom of the supply chain. And suddenly COVID comes along, tourism stops. That's our biggest export. Uh, and then, of course, dairy. But, you know, this is my point about this government needs to take some risks because it needs to start thinking about how it shifts that volume to value in terms of our exports, you know, how it does that. Because we've been talking about it for years. And I think that, you know, we don't necessarily want all the tourists back. We had a lot of tourists. These are very low-end, low-wage jobs in New Zealand. It's actually our chance mm. to think big about, you know, some kind of new deal, some kind of Marshall Plan rebuild that says, okay, actually New Zealand can be, you know, rather than raw logs, why aren't we the IKEA of the Pacific? Rather than milk powder, why don't we have a cheese industry that matches the French cheese industry? There's so much opportunity there. And I think that's what both Oliver and I would agree, is missing. And it was missing before COVID, and now it's really missing. Josie, as you probably know, uh, China has been causing all sorts of anxieties in Australia on a wide range of issues. And since the pandemic, it has targeted many Australian industries that are heavily dependent on China. Is there a danger that New Zealand uh, could be subjected to that kind of uh, scrutiny from Beijing? I think New Zealand will continue its path of being extremely careful about the positions it takes around China. And I think that's going to be increasingly a problem, whether it's the Uyghur issue and the human rights issue in China or whether it's uh, the trade war. You know, do we have to pick sides between the US and China if that trade war escalates? And I'm not even convinced that a Biden-led America will particularly change its position on, you know, America first when it comes to trade. New Zealand's very vulnerable generally because we are so dependent on um, our trading relationships and our exports. And so we're very careful whether you're on the left or the right of the political spectrum. We've got a pretty consistent stance, which is that we try not to pick sides. We try to navigate our way. We're very uh, supportive of a, of a rules-based system and the WTO. Uh, but yeah, we, we, I mean, we are vulnerable because we have a, you know, the FTA with China and it's, it's now become you know, our biggest market. But I think the bigger problem is the one we were talking about before, where we're still exporting milk powder to China or anywhere else. And I think that's the, the bigger problem. And, and the real issue is, does this Labour government have a, uh, a plan to really shift the dial on our productivity and the quality of our exports? You know, can it make some big decisions that might not be popular with some sectors, but will, I think, increase that productivity? And that will help us get through the economic uh, rainy days ahead. Josie, Oliver, great to have you on ABC's Radio National. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. Oliver Hartwich is from the New Zealand Initiative and Josie Pagani is from the New Zealand-based Council for International Development. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. Now, when you think of America... 
politically speaking, what comes to your mind? That it's the home of a gun-toting, Bible-clutching, government-bashing, gas-guzzling right-winger? Well, that image may well represent a thing of the past. My next guest says that, quote, for many of the young and soon-to-be middle-aged, and for a rising generation of American politicians, support for socialism in its post-Cold War iterations with the connotation of putting the interests of society above those of private enterprise. They may eventually become how they describe the alternative to a failing free market capitalism. That's the quote. It's John B. Judas. He's the author. And the book is called The Socialist Awakening. What's different now about the left? It's published by Columbia Global Reports. It follows John's recent earlier books on the populist explosion, that was 2016, and the nationalist revival in 2018. John's based in Washington, and it's always great to have him on Australian Public Radio. G'day, John. Hi. I wish I was there. (laughs) Well, let's start with a couple of quotes from your introduction. In 2003, the Marxist literary critic, this is Frederick Jameson, he argued, quote, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Yet 17 years later, this year, 2020, Vox editor Dylan Matthews quipped, quote, the end of the world is making it easier to imagine the end of capitalism. What's going on here? Well, the combination of the uh, pandemic and uh, another uh, great recession uh, is making it necessary for uh, governments to do things, uh, especially in the United States, that they wouldn't otherwise do at all, which is to spend uh, immense amounts of money on the economy, on health care, transportation, energy. So uh, we've really entered an era of big government. And the the question that's facing us is, you know, what kind of big government are we going to have? The era of big government, which Bill Clinton claimed was over in 1996 when he was president, it's back with a vengeance. We're in a new era. Your line, let me just clarify, is that the coronavirus pandemic, it won't spell the end of capitalism, but it's put the final nail in the coffin of the laissez-faire globalized capitalism of the past three decades. That's your line, explain. Well, first you had the Great Recession, uh, which was uh, at least in part the result of financial uh, deregulation in the United States, uh, and also the result of of, uh, the the way we had structured globalized capitalism. So again, that's seen as a failure of uh, a kind of laissez-faire model of capitalism. Now you come upon a situation where really the the public interest, the government acting in the public interest has to intervene, just like it has to do under wars, World War One and World War Two. It has to intervene in the market to make sure that, for instance, um, pharmaceutical companies, uh, hospitals act in the public interest. So it, you know, that's the, that's the sense in which I'm talking about laissez-faire capitalism, just letting things happen uh, it, no longer viable in the United States or, or in Europe, for that matter. I suppose the argument, though, is coming out of the pandemic, doesn't government need to put in place policies that encourage businesses to, to uh, have incentives to create wealth and to, to create investment so that that will get the, the economy going? You're saying increasingly more and more people will rely on the government to get us out of this recession. Well, 
out of the recession. But yes, absolutely. We have to have economic growth and uh, a large percentage of that is going to come from private industry. But I think one of the other things that uh, Americans have realized is that we have to worry about global supply chains and whether we have in the United States uh, the ability to produce, let's say, pharmaceuticals. If we uh, confront a situation like we have, uh, where we suddenly need enormous supplies of them. We can no longer simply rely on, uh, let's say, producers in China to supply us. So I think that there's been a realization that we have to, de- we have to decide that the- what industries are vital. And if they're vital to the country, we have to make sure that we can produce them in the United States. My guest is John B. Judas. He's author of The Socialist Awakening, What's Different Now About the Left. Now, John, the principal subject of your book is the rise of socialist politics in the United States, which you say is due primarily to Bernie Sanders. But Sanders was denied the presidential nomination this year for the second and likely final time. I suppose the question here is, if Sanders is such a consequential figure in your book, how do you account for his losses? Well, you know, most Americans still, I would say, grew up uh, during the Cold War and they identify uh, socialism with the Soviet Union and not with Sweden or Denmark uh, or with the uh, aspirations of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, which is the way that uh, not, not just Sanders, but young people understood it. I mean, the thing that happened in the United States before Bernie Sanders ran for president was that a lot of kids, I mean, again, 18 to 29 year olds came online, so to speak, in that in the early 21st century and confronted this great recession, a situation where suddenly it was very hard to find jobs. They'd gone, a lot of them had gone to college and they had high expectations that weren't met. Climate change, which for them, I think is very similar to the way nuclear war was for my generation growing up in the 1950s and early 60s. I mean, they see it in apocalyptic terms. And again, as a product of an unregulated capitalism. So what really happened wasn't so much that that people became socialists, but that they became disillusioned with capitalism. And given that, they became more inclined to think about an alternative socialism. But what socialism is and was, uh, remains pretty undefined. And what Bernie Sanders did really was give it a shape and form so that a lot of kids could say, yes, that's, I'm a socialist. Yes. So underlying all of this, and this is your argument in your book, it's a longer term shift in the place of especially college educated young people uh, in the economic sphere. That's fueled doubts about the benefits of capitalism. But what about the white working class folks, especially in those Rust Belt Midwest states who in recent times have been displaced by globalization, technological change? A lot of those former Democratic voters voted for Trump in 2016, John. How do tomorrow socialists appeal to these folks? when the socialists today advocate also identity politics, open borders, doesn't that just infuriate the old white working class? Well, look, you have to distinguish between people who call themselves socialists now and belong, let's say, to a socialist organization 
And, you know, the 40 or 50 percent, uh, if you poll 18 to 40 year olds who look favorably upon socialism and upon politicians, let's say like Elizabeth Warren, who have the very same politics as Bernie Sanders, but don't call themselves socialists. Again, it's people before profits. Uh, it's a it's a kind of safety net that we really don't have in the United States. You are, you're much better off. Uh, in Australia, for instance, with your uh, healthcare system than we are. Mm -hmm. So again, it's that sense of socialism. Now, within a lot of the active people on the left, there is a real cultural split uh, with the people in the Midwest from small town, mid-sized America, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, again is based very much on uh, culture as much as it is on politics. Um, people who grew up in towns where they expected to have lifetime employment in factories, where a lot of their life was ripped apart, and where they see, you know, they fall back upon certain things, nation, God, family, guns to protect my home. Whereas for a lot of college-educated kids, life is much different. They have much uh, a proliferation of identities, and we have this great gulf. I mean, I don't know how strong it is in Australia, but you find the same thing in Europe. So you have this kind of strange situation where you have, uh, again, this generation of people who are skeptical of capitalism, but have cultural beliefs that put them at odds with other people in the country who are also uh, amenable, as, as Trump showed in 2016 to an anti-free uh, market, anti-unregulated mm -hmm, capital mm -hmm. politics. But mm -hmm. they're not coming together. That's the, I mean, that's the real dilemma at the heart of, uh, you know, the Labor Party in Britain, uh, the Democratic Party it, in the United States. Is this a generational thing, John? I mean, the, the old white working class folks uh, are from a different era, whereas these millennial socialists who are in their 20s and their 30s, they may well represent the wave of the future, which is why socialism has a bright prospect in America. Is that your line? Well, it, it, may, it may be. I would hope that a lot of those towns that are now dying out, where all the young people uh, from the small towns in North Carolina leave for Winston-Salem or Charlotte, uh, that there is some attempt to uh, bring back uh, industry in those towns and to revive them. And, you know, you can do it through education. Uh, but yeah, that's a it's it's a declining part of the American electorate. Okay, well that brings us to the U.S. presidential election on November three. There is a school of thought that says that Joe Biden, the candidate for the Democratic Party, he's so weak that he is a Trojan horse for the increasingly dominant left wing of the Democratic Party. Here's Bernie Sanders on MSNBC a few months ago. He's talking about how his team has helped draft the Democrats' policy platform. And I think the compromise that uh, they came up with, if implemented, will make Biden the most progressive president uh, since FDR. Now that's Bernie Sanders. John Judas, hasn't Biden moved further to the left since the primaries and adopted much of the policy platform of his former rival, Bernie Sanders? I don't think he's moved that far. Those were these workshops uh, to set up kind of provisional programs. It, it actually wasn't that represented in the platform. Uh, the Democratic Party remains a hodgepodge. Uh, if you look at this, at Biden's donors, he's getting a lot of money from Silicon Valley and Wall Street. 
if he is elected, it's going to be a fight over policy. And and uh, I really would not assume that he's going to be a cr- creature of the de- left wing of the Democratic Party. Again, uh, very much a uh, center-right uh, politician. And that's the kind of programs he's endorsed, a public option uh, for health care so where people, if they don't, uh, if they can't get private insurance, can get it from a, the government, but not a takeover of, uh, of health care and private insurance. So I don't think it's fair to describe him as a Trojan horse for the left. John, as always, it's great to have you on Between the Lines. Uh, great to be th- there, even if it there means uh, in Washington, D.C. versus Australia. John B. Judas is author of The Socialist Awakening, What's Different Now About the Left? It's published by Columbia Global Reports. Well, that's it for this week. And if you'd like to hear again this program on the resurgence of the left in both America and New Zealand, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. And of course, if you'd like to hear my other interviews with John Judas about his other books on populism and nationalism, we'll put the links on our homepage. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Look forward to your company next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.